This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 248, Post Pearl Harbor, The American Giant is Awakened. As the second attack wave flew back north, General Short and his staff were taken to the underground bunker of the Red Hill Ordnance Depot at Alemanu Crater, just east of Ford Island. Though there was not a third wave of Japanese air attacks, reports kept coming to General Short of the death of military personnel and the destruction of his military facilities. However, the larger question was, was the airstrikes only a prelude to a ground invasion? There were so many unknowns. The local radio stations were taken off air. The last thing the battered Americans needed was to give any further threat a directional beacon. And it was in this blackout that Joseph Poindexter, the 8th governor of Hawaii, declared a state of emergency. Children would not attend school the next day, and the lights would not come on this night. Poindexter was able to have a short conversation with FDR, who promised food and planes. The latter was to help make up for the losses suffered that day, and hopefully used to locate the enemy. It had been then that General Short asked for martial law. Poindexter, being a civilian politician, was loath to give up control, although the president had just said to him that it was probably a good idea. But what brought him around was the wide-ranging death and destruction, not to mention the general's assessment that, for all he knew, landing parties of the Japanese were en route. Governor Poindexter signed the appropriate paperwork to turn all authority over to the U.S. Army at 4.25 p.m. 
local time. This state of being, with no habeas corpus, with the police and courts under the control of the army, would remain for three years. With the army now in control on that same day, December 7th, the local FBI agents collaborated with the army to hunt down and apprehend any and all foreign operators. The first target was the Japanese embassy on Nuanu Avenue in the southeast corner of the island in Honolulu. As the Americans rushed in, they found the Japanese staff burning papers. Within 24 hours, all Japanese, German, and Italian persons considered a security threat were placed in a detention camp on Sand Island, just off the coast of Honolulu. It had previously been used as a quarantine holding facility for suspected incoming ships, and hence had been called Quarantine Island. Now the Americans were quarantining themselves against enemy spies. Within 10 days of the attack, the staff of the Japanese embassy would be sent to Phoenix, Arizona, for interrogation. This included the still-unknown spy, Takeo Yoshikawa. During his interrogations, he never broke his cover and was a part of a prisoner exchange in August of 1942. He continued his work for naval intelligence. As for the ambassadors Nomura and Kurusu, as well as others, like the Japanese journalist Matsuo Kato, they were taken to a facility in Hot Springs, Virginia, where they joined German and Italian enemy aliens. Overall, they were treated well. So well, in fact, that they soon asked if they could use the golf course at Hot Springs. However, the authorities relayed the fact that the locals of Western Virginia, a state of many hunters who knew of their presence, were hoping to get a shot at a few of the Japanese prisoners. So, being out in the open was not a good idea. It had been at 2.05 p.m. Washington time when Ambassadors Nomura and Kurusu had arrived at Hole's office. At 2.20 p.m., he had brought them in for the now-famous tongue-lashing. Just five minutes after that, news agencies were starting to report on the attack of far-off Oahu. Word was getting out. At 3 p.m., having one hour, more or less, to digest the grievous news, FDR met with Secretary of War Stimson, Secretary of State Hull, Personal Assistant and Confidant Harry Hopkins, General George Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff, and others. Recognizing that what was done was done, FDR had pointed questions for these men. But it wasn't in the tone of, how in the hell did you let this happen? But rather, simply, how had this been possible? Because whatever the attack on Pearl Harbor was, it was recognized as only the Empire's opening move. There would be more attacks, more loss of life, and more military defeats for the still undersized U.S. military. As for Japan's possible next target, FDR brought up the Panama Canal. After all, if the audacious Japanese could hit Pearl, their follow-up plan could have been to block up the shortcut, thus requiring any U.S. naval assistance from the Atlantic 
to sail all the way around Cape Horn of Chile. Further, the president quickly became obsessed with the American people finding out how many American lives were lost at Pearl. For now, he wanted all radio broadcasts and phone calls from Hawaii cut off if they talked of the extent of the tragedy. For him, it was one thing at a time. Besides being a politician, FDR wanted to inform the public of the events in a controlled way. So the group then talked of the speech he would have to give to Congress, asking for a declaration of war that would be broadcasted. As Secretary of State Hall was from the generation before the President's, he wanted the speech to fully explain to the people the government's attempts to work things out with Japan, and that it was the Japanese who had been two-faced during this process. But Roosevelt instinctively drew away from this. He felt that his message had to be powerful, yet relatively short. The American people, feeling that they had been sucker-punched, would only want to know what was Washington going to do next. Period. If anything, it should be more like one of his fireside chats, where he imagined himself talking to just a few people in the same room as himself. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house in getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. So the news of Pearl was getting out, but the newspapers thus far were reporting on deaths and the wounded in numbers that were far below the truth. This was not intentional, but from a lack of knowledge. When much higher numbers were confirmed, the president asked the various news agencies not to release these. Just yet. His reasoning was that this would only aid the enemy. But his true reasons were probably just ordinary fear. As the American public absorbed the news, they wanted revenge, and they wanted to get down to the business at hand. But this was not just due to anger that wanted venting. For at least the last two decades, the American press had, for purely racial reasons, downplayed the abilities of Japanese soldiers. It had become conventional wisdom that they were not as smart as the average American, that their eyes did not allow them to see as well as the whites, hence they were inferior pilots. And as they were not Christians, God would make sure that the correct side would win. 
So the Americans wanted to jump into this, not only out of a sense of revenge, completely understandable, but that it couldn't be that hard to win a war against these kind of people. Yet the Americans were about to be reminded of an old lesson of chess. Play the board, not the opponent. And at the moment, the board in the Pacific and in South Asia heavily favored the Japanese. Meanwhile, in London, Churchill was having dinner with Special Envoy Avril Harriman and American Ambassador to Great Britain, Gil Wynett, and others at Chequers, just to the northwest of London, the country home of the Prime Minister since 1921. It was there that they all heard the BBC report. President Roosevelt has announced that the Japanese have bombed the Hawaiian base of the U.S. fleet at Pearl Harbor. Since his coming into office, Churchill had been pressuring FDR to get into the war. So, for political and military reasons, his initial response to this report was, we will declare war on Japan. Afterward, he placed a call to FDR. Mr. President, what's this about Japan? The response was equally direct. It's quite true. They have attacked us at Pearl Harbor. We are all in the same boat now. So, it may not have happened the way Churchill wanted it to, or when he wanted it to, but the Allies now had a resource-rich and numerous partner. The Prime Minister would write after the war, To have the U.S. at our side was to me the greatest joy. I knew that the U.S. was in the war, up to the neck and into the death. So, we had won, after all. Hitler's fate was sealed. Mussolini's fate was sealed. As for the Japanese, they would be ground to powder. I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. As for Hitler, he could only see the good for Germany in the Japanese and the Americans fighting in the Pacific and Asia. After all, his agreement, the tripartite pact with Japan, did not demand that he declare war on the U.S. if Japan was the aggressor. But even if Hitler decided to take that step, he felt confident that the U.S. would want to focus on Japan to get revenge, and that Japan would win, as it had never been conquered in 3,000 years. In fact, over the next few days, Hitler would come ever closer to making that monumental decision. First, the U.S. Navy and German U-boats were already in an undeclared war in the Atlantic. Next, the Fuhrer hated Roosevelt personally for his continued attacks against Nazi ideology. As we have seen, Hitler took some wars very personally, like his current struggle against Stalin. Lastly, Hitler believed that Japan was stronger than the U.S., which was true enough at the moment, but he was thinking in terms of the Blitzkrieg, which meant if FDR, like Stalin, was not willing to surrender unless he, in Washington, was captured personally, Japan would have to cross the Pacific, land on the West Coast, push U.S. forces back 2,500 miles, cross two major mountain chains and the Mississippi, and then 
dictate terms to the president. That simply wasn't possible for Japan. Mussolini was less kind and gallant in why the Japanese would defeat the Americans. After all, America, to him, was a country of Negroes and Jews. Obviously, he was not up to date on the country's current laws and unwritten norms that kept blacks down. The U.S. military was segregated and would stay so until 1948. And the Jim Crow laws were not struck down until the 1950s. Further, Mussolini believed that FDR, the paralytic, was not man enough to lead the U.S. during a time of war. He said it this way, There have been bald kings, fat kings, and even stupid ones, but never a king who, when he wanted to use the toilet, must be assisted by other men. As for the Jewish influence, Il Duce would have found it interesting that anti-Semitism was alive and well in certain circles in the U.S., certainly in the U.S. State Department. After talking with Churchill, at 4.50 p.m., FDR called in Grace Tully, his personal assistant. Tully had been the assistant of Missy Lehan, FDR's personal assistant, and his lover, but she had suffered a stroke earlier that year. Now it was Tully, but her interactions were limited to work. The president began to speak, forming his message to Congress for the next day. Tully put his words on paper. Few changes would be made, as FDR knew how he wanted to present this catastrophe to his fellow citizens. At 6.30 p.m., Eleanor Roosevelt, the First Lady, gave her Sunday radio broadcast. She certainly would not give away too much, That was for the president, but she wanted to do her part to prepare the American people for what was to come, specifically the women and the young men. I am speaking to you at a very serious moment in our history. We know what we have to face, and we know we are ready to face it. I should like to say just a word to the women in the country tonight. Many of you all over the country have boys in the services who will now be called upon to go into action. I have a boy at sea on a destroyer. For all I know, he may be on his way to the Pacific. We must go about our daily business more determined than ever to do the ordinary things as well as we can. Whatever is asked of us, I am sure we can accomplish it. To the young people of the nation, I must speak a word tonight. There will be high moments in which your strength and your ability will be tested. I have faith in you. I feel as though I was standing upon a rock, and that rock is my faith in my fellow citizens. The Roosevelts would be the second and last, after Lincoln, to have children serving in the military during a time of war. Over the next few days, Hitler would have a long think about declaring war on the United States, though FDR would not declare war on Germany during his speech to Congress. One of Hitler's reasons for deciding to move forward was psychological. It should be the stronger nation, Nazi Germany, to declare war first. That would strike fear into the still-stunned 
Americans. It would not do, to Hitler's thinking, to have the United States make the first aggressive mood. In that same vein, Japan would declare war on the United States, just eight hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor had begun. Again, the hope was that the declaration would further rattle the Americans, who would eventually ask for peace. This would also give Tokyo the chance to get its version of events out to the world first. So Premier Tojo was heard on the radio that night. We, by grace of heaven, Emperor of Japan, hereby declare war on the United States of America and the British Empire. It has been truly unavoidable and far from our wishes that our empire had not been brought to cross swords with America and Britain. These two powers, inducing other countries to follow suit, increase military preparation on all sides of our empire. They have obstructed by every means our peaceful commerce. They have intensified economic and military pressure to compel thereby our empire to submission. Our empire has no other recourse but to appeal to arms and to crush every obstacle in its path. Back in Washington, at 8 p.m., FDR called his cabinet together. Though all of them were still trying to come to grips with the casualties, the list seemed to keep growing, the president told his cabinet that he was sure that Nazi Germany was in on this, that Germany probably told Japan something like, we will soon control North Africa and the Middle East, and the British will be isolated. If you want in on this, you need to act now. Secretary of War Henry Stimson asked the president if that was the case, would he ask for a declaration of war on both countries? But FDR was noncommittal. The cabinet also tried to take in the news that the Japanese had also attacked British and Dutch-controlled Borneo, northeast British Malaya, and the Philippines, which will be covered in detail. But what the men could not get past was the weak American response at Pearl Harbor. Though it was a Sunday morning, what about all the warnings sent to General Short? Why was surveillance so weak? Why weren't there more officers on board the battleships? How did the Japanese get away after the attack? Why weren't they being hunted down? But it was too soon for such analysis. Next, FDR met with select congressmen. Knowing they would be unable to keep information to themselves, he only told them a fraction of what he knew. Still, it was bad enough that these men asked the same questions and with the same amount of anger and incredulity as his cabinet. The president told them that Guam, Wake, and Shanghai had been attacked. The last one, Shanghai, was a renewed attack after months of relative calmness. FDR then asked Congress for a joint session at 12.30 the next day. The response to this was, would the president ask for a declaration of war against Japan and Nazi Germany? But again, FDR told the men he was unsure of Germany for the moment. Meanwhile, Pearl Harbor was still dealing with thousands of dead and injured. That included 
bullet wounds, burns, amputations, and oil. Oil all over the men, in their eyes, and in their bodies. The treatment for all of these was painful to administer, and painful to withstand. As for the dead, dental records would be used to give the departed a proper headstone. The men and women of Pearl spent the night of December 7th dealing with the dead and wounded, and began cleaning up the wreckage of the attack, all with fearful thoughts that the Japanese would return, while at the same time aching for revenge. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, before I go on and thank the members, the new members, people who have donated or bought mugs, um, I do want to give you an announcement that is going to get me in trouble with some of you. Um, a couple of months ago, I put on Facebook that I was coming to London this late summer, asking for advice. I got a lot of responses. Thank you very much. However, the devil is in the details. When we got down to actually making our plans, I was outvoted by my extended family, who I now all hate. Um, so instead of coming to London, I will be uh, in Scotland. Let's see here. I'm going to be in Edinburgh from July 26th to the 31st. Maybe we can, uh, some of us can meet up and hang out. And I will be in Inverness from the 31st to August the 4th. And then I'll be spending two nights on Sky. But um, so again, for, for anybody who wanted to meet me in London, or for some of you, there was one gentleman who was actually, ouch, going to change his vacation plan so he could say hi. I feel really bad, so I wanted to put this out now that everything's been confirmed. So I will be in Scotland. I'll get a chance to finally meet Paul Finch, my web tech guru who has kept the website going um, smoothly for years. And I'll get to meet his lovely family, so I'm looking forward to that. Anyway, so when it comes to thanking the latest members, I just want to say hello and thank you to George S. from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, let's see here. John R., not a member, but he did recommend a book for me to me uh, for the Pacific War. Um, Joaquin J., um, William S., Bunston, Boonston, sorry, I'm sure I butchered that one. Sorry, William S., Dean A., McKinney, Texas, Stephen P., Brookston, Indiana, uh, Nigel G, York, Yorkshire, UK, Donald F from Raleigh, North Carolina, who is heading to Normandy, he told me, for the 75th anniversary of D-Day. I am very jealous, uh, Donald. Uh, Thomas D from Sharon, Connecticut. Jeff I, Fort Collins, Colorado. And um, Ludger H from Berlin, Germany. Um, let's see here. There was a Caleb K., uh, who bought a mug, a Churchill mug, from Parker, Colorado. And the following have made donations, uh, helping the show along. Uh, Bradley H., Steve A., and Mark W. from Colorado Springs, Colorado. And last but not least, I would like to thank Jeff I. for sending me a 1942 atlas that is coming in very handy trying to plan out how to tell the complicated story in the Pacific. So again, if you want to support the show, you can donate, you can become a member, get two extra episodes a month. You can find everything on worldwar2podcast.net. Um, you can sign up there, ask me any questions. Um, you can also send me an email if you have any questions to wwiipodcast.gmail.com. So again, I will try to come out with another episode this Friday or Saturday. It depends on what the family's got planned, but I'm trying to do uh, one a week now. 
and uh, I appreciate your patience and support. And as always, take care, everyone. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.